Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Here we go, you guys. Well, good morning. Apologies. This is a a day late and a dollar short episode. Uh, Usually these are out Wednesday, and um, it was my hope to have this one out Wednesday, but life gets in the way. You guys know how that goes. Um, Had quite the the crazy week. Um, So I didn't have... I didn't have the time to prepare a episode with uh, a whole lot of detail, so I'm going to riff this one a little bit, but there's been a couple things um, on my mind lately. Some, some of the stuff Kyle and I have talked about uh, having to do with, you know, like we always talk about religion, and well, I do, and, um, and seeing how as kind of religiosity fades in the Western world. You know, you can just think about your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents if you were lucky enough to know them and, and just kind of recall how religious they were, kind of what their what their um, beliefs were. Um, you know, I think we would all agree that, that they were much more religious than we are and that we're seeing a trend we maybe we have for quite a long time away from it. And the thing that Kyle and I always talk about is that there's this religious tendency, there's this religious wiring, let's say, in human beings. And, you know, we could talk about where it, where it comes from or why it's there or what, what purpose it serves, but it's there. And when people aren't practicing kind of traditional religion, we could talk about what that means, um, they're going to fill that gap with something. And what they seem to be doing is filling that gap with ideology. And it's political ideology. You know, it's the way that Kyle and I talk about um, talk about, I guess, f- the fanatical belief, the unquestioned belief that you see from half of the population. Um, you know, like, where's the skepticism? Where is the skepticism? You guys are just swallowing everything you're hearing hook, line, and sinker. And um, and it's just interesting to see how these religious impulses have been sort of co-opted by, by political parties, you know? Um and I'm going to talk about that a little bit today, but there's that idea that I've been kicking around a lot, just kind of wondering what it means, how long has it been going on, you know, it seems like it's been going on a long time. I mean, you guys probably remember um, Karl Marx uh, describing religion as the opiate of the masses. That goes back a long way. So I'm wondering how far back it goes. It's not a modern phenomenon, you know, but I think as... um, as people's belief in God and their attachment to organized religion fades, that, you know, political parties and ideology 
seem to be filling that gap. That that just seems to be happening. It's it's and you can see because if you talk to somebody who's fanatical, who's you know conservative, religious, and fanatical, um, and you talk to them about something controversial, they sound just like half of the population does today when and maybe maybe a hundred percent of the population I, I should say when we're talking about a contentious political issue it's like if my side is wrong that that it's it destroys the foundation of all of my beliefs so I, I i it can't be wrong we can't allow it to be wrong we're going to push the narrative we're going to tiptoe around it any way we can we're going to maintain this sacred thing and that's how it seems if if political ideology is telling you that something is sacred and you can't question it, that's a problem. And it's a problem that came up on a podcast I was listening to the other day. Um, uh, it's Jordan Peterson's podcast. Surprise, surprise. Uh, listening to him, uh, he was doing a conversation with a guy named Mustafa uh, Akyol, A-K-Y-O-L. And it was interesting because Jordan's getting into this. Um, well, he's getting into Islam. He's trying to. He's trying to understand. It seems like he's trying to understand what's going on in the Middle East today, how it got to be the way it is, um, just to try to understand it. And he he mentioned before when he was doing like the biblical lectures and talking about religion that there's that was a gap in his knowledge. Like he didn't have an opportunity to study it, uh, or he hadn't yet. And he had he had a difficult time finding anybody in the Islamic world that wanted to actually talk to him in good faith. You know, not like somebody that wanted to sabotage him or somebody that wanted to, you know, have a violent argument with him or something. But somebody that wanted to talk to him and allow him to ask questions in all due respect and, you know, have an actual conversation. And that's what we're missing so much in this world. A fucking honest conversation. So he did that, and and he's apparently he's going to be doing that with um, several, um, I don't know if you call them Islamic scholars, but the guy he talked to today was an author, a Turkish guy, I believe, really well spoken, really smart, really steeped in it, and um, and they had a great conversation, and some stuff came up in that conversation about that that topic I started with, how religion and politics are tied together, and how if any one of those a powers wanes, then the opposite power sort of fills that gap. So you kind of have this back and forth between the power of religion and the power of government, and um, and then all of the risks and dangers of when those things become one. You know, when you have a theocracy, when when the when the religion is the government, um, or equally as as terrifying, um, when the government does not permit. Religiosity. So when it completely overwhelms the religious instincts, co-ops them, and doesn't allow that to exist in our you know personal lives anymore. Uh, and you might wonder what I mean by that, but I, I'm, I'm talking about social pressure to be anti-religious, just like there's social pressure today to be anti-racist. You know what I mean? Um, if you believe in God, you you must be conservative. You must be dumb. You, you know, you must have not examined things. You must not know the science. You must, you know, have never asked the questions. Something's wrong with you. So that's what I mean by social pressure to not be religious. Um, you can't, you know, you can't pray in school. You can't um, talk about religion in public. You can't talk about it at, at, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Like, that's what I mean. Things that aren't so obvious that, um, uh, that make it, that make it, 
shameful in some way uh, to be religious or to acknowledge your religious instincts. Um, so it's all this stuff's twisted together, and I and I wasn't exactly sure how to bring this to you, but uh, but this is what I want to try to do. I want to talk about Islam a little bit because Jordan Peterson did, and in a way that it, it sparked my interest. And I'm going to be honest and just tell you, I you guys know I have deeper interest in religion, always have. But my interest in Islam has always been pretty minor, you know? Uh, and I asked myself before this episode, why? And I have some reasons, I have some explanations. Partly because I have this, I had the same feeling with Christianity. It's like, when I was a kid and I was learning all this stuff for the first time and it was blowing my mind, I wanted to learn about religions vastly different from mine. Because I grew up with it, it was commonplace, it was mundane, it was, there was nothing about my own religion that had any spirit to it to me. Nothing about going to church had any spirit to it to me. Nothing about singing songs, you know, pointed, everyone pointed in the same direction, singing songs at the, at the preacher behind a pulpit is how it seems, you know, singing hymns to the same guy standing up there. And I just never felt anything spiritual about it. I never, in fact, I had a kind of a difficult time understanding even the idea of worship because it didn't seem to me like anybody was singing to God or for God. Or if even if we were, that God gave us a single shit about that. You know, what does God care? What does God care that we're all singing the same song? That we, You know, you know what I mean. Been singing these same hymns. If you belong to a Protestant church like like the one I grew up in, you sing in the same hymns from the 1800s. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. The, you know, we know the words. Not really, though. We have a hymnal, right? We can. We don't. We don't have it memorized. <laughs> not like not like some of these um, some of these Islamic uh, scholars, but also just believers who have the entire Quran memorized, the entire thing, word for word. Um, we, we, we don't even know the lyrics to how great thou art without a fucking book with the lyrics on it. So anyway, I tell you all that just to say, um, that even my own religion that I was born into, it didn't hold any spark for me when I was in, when I was beginning to become interested in religion. So I thought maybe there's some parallels there. Like, why was I not interested in learning about Christianity, um, or, or Islam? when I was very interested to learn about things like Hinduism. Like, oh, Hinduism, the oldest religion in the world, 5,000 years old. It's outlived many religions that have come and gone. It's still there in this mysterious place with mysterious people. When I was a kid, I didn't understand, you know? You got these people that look different than us. They dress different than us. All You know, what is that dot in between their eyes? What does it mean? You know, what is all of it's a mystery, you know, and it's interesting. But with my own religion, none of it was a mystery to me. And maybe it should have been. Maybe that's some arrogance, uh, you know, some naive arrogance as a kid that you think, you know, you've heard the, the stories in Sunday school and you understand, you understand it enough. And, you know, there's not much, there's not anything, there's not any mysteries to it. There's not anything left to be uncovered. Maybe that's how I felt. Um, you know, I look at religions from the East that seemed, you know, exotic, you know, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism. That was interesting. Um, learning about like Christian cults, you know, like the Moonies and the Kyle and I were talking about the Branch Davidians and some of those other people, like some of those cults from the from the sixties and seventies, and that's interesting, you know, the Harry Krishnas at the airport in the seventies, that's interesting, but Christianity, you know, I, I already knew it, you know, it wasn't interesting. 
now I've changed my tune about that. And you probably picked up on that. But when I was younger, that's how I felt. And I'm going to be just brutally honest here because I think this is why I didn't, I never really thought much about Islam or wanting to learn that, you know, to wanted to dig into it deeply because when I was younger, I had this, I had this belief, I don't know where it comes from, intuition maybe, I had this belief that the older something was, the more valuable it was. The older it was, like an antique, right? The older it is, the more valuable it is, something like that. Um, and that was true with philosophy, that was true with religion. So for me, I'm like, if you want to know the truth, you got to go back as far as you possibly can, because the more time has gone by, the more development has happened, the more input random people have 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 uh, made to the beliefs that things change. You know, so you have to. It's like a, a game of um, uh, you know grapevine or whatever the hell it's called, um, whispering whispering something into somebody's ear, and by the time you get to the fifteenth person, you have no idea the message is completely changed. That's the kind of thing I, I had in mind. So go back to the beginning. You go to the earliest places, and that's where you're going to find the truth. That's where you're going to find the most unadulterated and pure ideas. And I also was stunned as a kid at how much we knew going back to very early times. You know, when you learn about ancient Greek philosophy, and you're like, what? Those people didn't have, you know... Any of the technology that we have today, they didn't. They, they couldn't communicate. They didn't have the phone. You know, they couldn't communicate with each other easily. They're they're much more separated, and their lives were much more simple. But they produced Parmenides. They produced Plato, Archimedes. You know, Euclid. They they generated complex math and geometry. They they a written language, um, sophisticated philosophy, all kinds of stories, dramas, Sophocles. You know, they they did so much. And then you read like somebody like Aristotle and you're like, this motherfucker hammered it. He, he figured shit out that you could not believe going way back, way back. And he studied everything. He wrote about beauty and aesthetics. He wrote about the movement of the, of the stars and the, and the, and the planetary bodies. You know, he, he wrote about politics. He wrote about everything. And it was amazing to me. It was like there was this golden age of classical antiquity when people lived a simpler life, they were closer to, you know, the earth and their bodies, and they knew shit that we have forgotten. They knew shit that you did not, you could not believe that they figured out. Not to mention the buildings that they were building, you know, the, I mean, just amazing. So I thought there was some valuable secret about ancient history that was lost and that we might recover if we could just go in there and read and learn the earliest and most ancient things. Does that seem reasonable to you? That That's how I felt. So here's the thing, man. Islam was born, uh, I mean, it was around, what, five or 600 AD? AD, right? Five or 600 AD. When I'm looking at five or 600 BC, talking about somebody like, you know, uh, Socrates or Parmenides or something like that, um, you know, there's a huge gap between Muhammad and these ancient Greek philosophers. A huge gap. In fact, you can look at Jesus, you know, Jesus being born, let's say, right around the turn of the first century. 
this is five, six hundred years later when, when Muhammad comes around and, and Islam is born. So where's the interest for me? Where's the interest for me? It's like a religion that was born yesterday as far as I'm concerned. It was a religion that was based heavily on more ancient religions that came before, Judaism and Christianity. So if you want to know the truth of the Abrahamic tradition, which includes Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, if you want to know the truth of that, where do you start? Do you start in 600 AD? Or do you start in 2500 BC? You know, Do you start with Moses? Do you start with Abraham? Right? Well, that's where I'm starting. I'm going as back, back as far as I can, because that's going to be the more true knowledge. That's where I'm going to find it. That is why, I think, Islam never held a great appeal to me. Because, because it's based on older things. And if I want to know the truth, I wouldn't want to start with the, with the version that's the most up-to-date, that's been influenced by the most time and the most changes in culture and you know, by the most in- interference from people. You know, There's a, a big gap between Moses and Muhammad. And, and an enormous gap, an unbreachable gap. So I'm starting with Moses. I'm not starting with Muhammad. And it just seemed to me like that, you know, it's like if, you know, they're remaking a lot of movies now, you know. It's like uh, a, a movie coming out that was made in the 60s or the 70s or something. And you're like, you watch it, and then you talk to your dad, and he's like, that's eh, bullshit. You got to go back and watch the original, you know. And, he, and there, there's some part about that that's bullshit, but there's some part about that that's completely legit. Go back and watch the original. There's value in that. So that's what, I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go back and watch the original. And Islam was the reboot. Do you know what I mean? All right, so I think that, that does a fair job of explaining why it didn't hold a lot of appeal to me. And, you know, there's been things that I've learned that have changed my mind a little bit. Uh, like you guys may, may know, I didn't, you know, years ago when I learned this, it blew my mind that the Muslim world used to be a bastion of liberalism and the height of science and technology and philosophy in the world. And it was centered in Baghdad. This was, in, this was during the Dark Ages when Europe was not doing well, when there was plagues. And it, in Europe, we had literally forgotten all of the classical Western tradition. We didn't even have Aristotle anymore in, in, in the West. It survived by being, by being maintained, translated into Arabic, and maintained in places like Baghdad during the Dark Ages. And the Renaissance that we talk so highly about, the Renaissance, the rebirth of Western civilization that brought us into the modern world, you know, the place that Leonardo da Vinci came from, the place that Raphael came from, that place that that happened when the west when the west regained their tradition that was being safeguarded by the muslims they were like oh you've forgotten about plato we've got that here it is translate it back into greek from arabic and that's what the fuck we did so there was a high point a golden age of islamic culture and at that time Europe was sort of the opposite. And so there was developments in math. You know, you guys may have heard of the word algebra. 
Have you ever you ever heard of the word Al Jazeera? <laughs> you, you notice any similarities between algebra and Al Jazeera? You get it, right? Uh, it, it comes from the Arab world, algebra. So we had all of these these advancements in math and uh, science and liberal reforms with with culture and government that were happening in the Muslim world in a time when Europe was doing badly. And, you know, from the Western historical perspective, you know, maybe you don't highlight that. You know, maybe you don't highlight so much the Dark Ages and how bad they were and how and how uh, sort of dumb uh, we were to not uh, to allow that to happen, to allow ourselves to get into that position for it to take so long for us to recover our, our heritage, let's say, and to turn our, our culture around. We don't want to highlight that, really. Um, and we also don't want to um, we don't want to highlight that whilst we were, you know, in that terrible, lowly place, um, some other group that we look upon today as backwards, let's say, you know, you think about uh, the way that the way that people commonly depict um, tribal society and life in rural places in, in the Middle East, like in Afghanistan or something. Uh, big, big difference between the golden age uh, of Islam and the way that the way that cultures are, are exist in that part of the world today and especially in those rural areas um, so so I'm, I'm starting to lose my train of thought so let me just pull this back here so I'm listening to this episode of um, Jordan Peterson talking to this uh, to this Turkish guy and he brings up something interesting he brings up the fact that there are stories. Well, he says, he, he kind of opens up by saying that Islam has a lot in common with Christianity and Judaism, and of course we know that. But he, and he, he emphasizes how important Jesus is and how important Mary is in the Quran. And that's interesting. If you ever hear a Muslim talk about that, it is interesting. Because the way that we understand Jesus and Mary, the virgin birth, why that miracle is significant, that kind of thing, um, the Muslims believe all of that same stuff but have different explanations, you know? And some of those beliefs that they have about Jesus in particular, you can find them in the Bible. There, there are parallels in the Bible, but there are also parallels in the Gnostic Gospels. So these were those early Christians in the first century that believed things very strange. We've talked about many of them. Um, these are those, the, the not gnosis, if you remember, it means secret knowledge. They believed they had secret knowledge about God and, and, and faith and, and meaning and, um, you know, all the most important things that they got that from God, that, that it was secret, that only they had it. And the reason why it wasn't widely available to everybody was because you wouldn't get it anyway. Even if I told you, you wouldn't understand. So only the elite, only the... Uh, the people that cracked the code, let's say, um, were worthy of that knowledge. And some of those stories show up in the Quran, and so this is kind of where my mind went. I want to know what Christianity was like in the very beginning, right? You want to go to the source. So I want to know, what was it like? You remember when we talked about the Gospel of Thomas, and we did that episode on the Gospel of Thomas? It's like, that might be the oldest gospel, older than the ones that you see in the Bible. And it says a lot of stuff that's like what you see in the Bible. But it says a lot of stuff that is not. It says some crazy stuff. Um, you know, I say crazy just from the perspective of a conservative Christian. It says some interesting and mystical stuff as well. And that might be the earliest one. And what does that mean? 
what does that mean about Christianity? What does it mean about the message that Jesus was teaching and, the, and the, his early followers believed? It might mean that the earliest Christians believed things very differently than, than modern Christians do today. It, it might mean that the f- Catholic dogma, that was the earliest kind of formal um, rules and, and, and uh, uh, whatnot of the, of the Christian faith, that that might be distinctly different from what Jesus taught, might be distinctly different from what the early Christian followers believed. And in fact, it might be so different that you, that we'd be hard pressed to say that it's the same religion or that it's carrying the same message. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you like to know if for the last 2000 years, the majority of the Western world has been worshiping Christianity, has, has been practicing Christianity and worshiping God in a way that is completely different, maybe even contradictory to what Jesus intended. Wouldn't that be something? And wouldn't you like to know? So that's where my mind is. So you go back and you you start looking at these early Christian um, religions, you know, these Gnostic groups and early Christian groups and what they believed and what they thought about Jesus and the stories that they told about Jesus and all that sort of thing. Um, you want to you get the earliest ones. You want to go to the source, right? That's where the truth is to be found. So here's the thing. A lot of that Gnostic stuff got buried, most of it, right? The um, Catholic Church or the, the early church fathers, they, they wanted one belief system. They didn't want people out there in the fringes of the society believing something different. And after enough time goes by, you end up with frac- the church fracturing in different directions. That happened anyway, but they didn't want that to happen. Right? They wanted everyone to be on the same page. They wanted the church to be in charge. And they wanted to you know, apply the same standards to every one of the followers. They wanted to get rid of the fringe groups. And they did. And I don't know how they did it. I don't know how, how extensive it was. Um, but I know that they did. Um, you might remember stories about the Crusades, like the Knights Templar. You might remember that the French monarchy decided after hundreds of years uh, of the Crusades going back and forth that um, uh, the Knights Templar, who had been there the whole time protecting you know, Christian travelers to the Middle East and all that sort of thing, uh, that they were heretical. And one day they, they just said, hey, the Knights Templar are heretical. Um, they, we've got to get rid of them. And they literally tracked them all down. And in the middle of the night, killed them all, many of them sleeping in their beds, just buried a sword in their chest, killed all of these Knights Templar all over the world. Very, very few of them survived, if any. That's what I'm talking about. That's what they did to the, to the Gnostics and the early Christians that didn't fall in line. Now, I don't have evidence for that beyond, beyond this. We never knew about them until we found the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt, and the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. Then, suddenly, we didn't find just bits and pieces. We didn't find just one or two. We found dozens and dozens and dozens of books that we never knew about. Many of them were Gnostic Gospels or or other religious texts that, um, that we either didn't know about at all or only had fragments of. And what, what we noticed was that there were so many of them and they went back such a long time that the only way you could have had this many of them and 
spread, spread across such a large area um, and with such diversity is if you had a thriving group of, of these Gnostics, you had a thriving population of people who believe them and people who are willing to hide them away in the desert and, you know, in caves and stuff to protect them. When the law cracked down and said, you can't read these books anymore, they hid them away. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they sat there hidden and we didn't know. And then we found them and we're like, fuck, we uncovered this entire part of history we never knew about. And all of these different beliefs about Christianity and, you know, the first century uh, uh, religious movements in that part of the world that we never knew. And it could have easily just been lost to history forever. And it was for a very long time. And we now we've recovered it. It's amazing. So why do I tell you that? I tell you that because when Muhammad lived, it wasn't that far after Jesus. And the Christian groups that were existing at the time that Muhammad would have had contact with, some of those groups would have been those Gnostic groups or groups that believed in ways that Christians don't believe today, in the very old, ancient, you know, original Christian style, whatever that might be. That there was a lot more going on there that we've that we've forgotten about. So, so the timeline looks something like this: Muhammad lived between five seventy and six thirty two A.D. The Gnostic Christians lived and were writing, and I say Christians, but I have to, I have to kind of go back and say the Gnostics actually predate Christianity. So there were some Gnostic writings that go back as far as a couple hundred years before Jesus. So you can you can see the Gnostics writing between 200 BC all the way up to 400 AD. That's very, very close to the time when Muhammad lived. And of course, the Gospels in the Bible were, were written between 40 AD and 150 AD. So we're really only a couple hundred years away from Muhammad's birth, even, even from the time the Gospels were written. And then you can consider like the Council of Nicaea when uh, Constantine got all the church fathers together and they were trying to decide what books of the Bible were were, were appropriate and, uh, you know, uh, what the Christian beliefs um, and dogma should be. You know, they argued about all kinds of weird things like, um, you know, uh, like, like whether Jesus was resurrected, uh, whether that actually happened, um, you know, whether baptism uh, has to be done a certain way, you know, all these various ins and outs and details and stuff that you, you might think are silly. They hammered out all those details at the Council of Nicaea to try to try to unify Christianity. That was 325 AD, 325 years after the time of Jesus' birth, approximately. That's when they finally decided, look, we have to we have to figure out one set of beliefs for the for the religion. We can't just let people, you know, go whichever way they want, believe in anything they want. We have to we have to bring this together. That was 325 AD, and Muhammad was born in 570 AD. Very close, right? And then you have the first one of the first attempts, maybe the first attempt, to put together a Bible that has all the books that you know um, are valid. That was done by St. Jerome in about 400 AD. So you can imagine the first time a Christian Bible existed as it does today, approximately, with an Old Testament and a New Testament, that was 400 AD. And Muhammad was born in 570. So I tell you all that just to say, 
that Muhammad would have been living in the Middle East among tribal people that were pagans of all different kinds. They believed in multiple multiple gods, tribal religions, religions that developed from those early, early religions in Mesopotamia. And they would have been all over the place there. And you got then you got Muhammad who comes on the scene and says, No, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all of these religions. We're going to uh, we're gonna instead believe in one God and and uh, you know, so on and so forth. And the interaction that Muhammad would have had with Jews and Christians in that part of the world at that time would have been many of those early Christian groups before the Council of Nicaea, before the the uh, Bible, the canon of the Bible was finalized, all that sort of thing. He would have been interacting with people that that were from the early days, that would have been believing in a tradition maybe a couple of generations old, you know, going back to the very first Christians. That's really close to the source. So here's so here's the here's the punchline. If you want to know what the earliest Christians believed, and we don't have a lot of resources to go on, you can look at the Gnostic Gospels, which we've done on this podcast. You can look at the the canonical Gospels, but you can also look at the Quran. And it never really occurred to me that the stuff that gets talked about in the Quran about Jesus and Mary, uh, that that stuff might actually have been an influence from these early Christian groups, you know, that we've basically lost, and we don't really know everything that they believed. And it turns out that there are stories in the Quran that you don't find in the Bible, but you do find in Gnostic Gospels especially infancy gospels that talk about Jesus's young life, you know, because our, our biblical gospels don't, don't talk much about Jesus as a kid, right? He's a baby, then he's doing his ministry. And so um, there are Gnostic gospels that aren't accepted, that aren't in the Bible, that talk about Jesus when he was a kid. And there's a story that's in the Gnostic gospels, that's in the Quran, that goes something like this, if you've never heard this story. It said that... Uh, uh, you know, I can't remember the full context, but basically, Jesus was a kid, you know, he was out playing with his friends. He went down to the shore, and he was pulling clay off of the kind of riverbank, and he was forming the clay into the shape of pigeons. And then he, his, while his friends were standing around, he would blow the breath of life into these pigeons, these clay pigeons, and they would become actual pigeons and fly away. And his friends are looking around, you know, like you would if, like you would if somebody was doing magic tricks in front of a bunch of kids. All of those kids are sitting around with their mouth agape and their eyes open. They're just like, you know, Jesus is amazing. Look what he's doing, and uh, and that's what he was doing. He was taking clay, just like God took clay and made human beings in the beginning, right? He was taking clay from the from the riverbank and and turning these clay pigeons into live pigeons. You never heard that story in the Bible. It's an interesting story. Um, and you, but you see that in the Quran, and so I wonder, you know, what does that story mean? Why is it significant? You know, it, it says something like Jesus was doing miracles while he was, you know, ten years old, and you don't see that in the Bible. It's like, when did Jesus start doing miracles? Was it after he was uh, baptized by John the Baptist? That's what the, the Bible shows, but the Quran says no, he was doing miracles when he was a kid. There's a, there's other. Um, Gnostic stories that say Jesus spoke the day that he was born. He spoke. So you see what I mean? Like that, probably, you know, <laughs> that's a, you know, this, it's, it, 
tests credulity, credulity that story, but so does, so does breathing life into clay pigeons. Here's another story you might not have heard about Jesus. I don't think this one is in the Quran, but it's a, it's a Gnostic story, so let me tell it to you. There's a story that when Jesus was a kid, that he was playing with his friends, running through the town, playing with his friends, and uh, one of his friends, I think, I think he, I think he pisses him off. I think Jesus does this out of anger when he was young. Um, he he kills one of his friends. Jesus kills one of his friends. You ever heard that story? And when the town find out, they go to Jesus and they say, "Did you do this thing?" And he admits to it right away that he did. And it's like it didn't occur to him that that was a terrible thing. And so when the, when the community said, hey, this was a terrible thing, he was like, oh, my bad. And he brings the kid back to life. You ever hear that story? It's interesting. It's interesting, right? So you, you can see... I mean, you can see things in that. You can see evidence of Jesus doing miracles before the Bible says he did. Why that might be significant, I don't know, but there it is. Um, you have you have a parallel, obviously, between God making Adam out of clay and Jesus making these clay pigeons. So there's a parallel that connects the story of Jesus back to the book of Genesis. Um, which is interesting to me because that's something that connects Jesus with creation, connects Jesus with God. That's something Christians do. It's something that Muslims do not do. So, right? Right? You're going to make this symbolic connection between Jesus taking these clay figures and turning them into living, breathing creatures. That's what God did with human beings in Genesis. No doubt about it. You're going to make that parallel between Jesus when you don't believe Jesus is God, right? Because Islam doesn't believe Jesus is God. It's an interesting story, right, to, to find in the Quran if, if that's clearly what the connection, symbolic connection that the story is making. So I don't know. I don't know what the, you know, I don't know what the importance is of, of um, the stories or the interpretation of the stories, but it's interesting. Um, so I had a buddy years ago, um, was really the second... Muslim family I ever met. I talked. I told you guys about the high school uh, and when I was in high school, the family from uh, from uh, Pakistan. Um, but as an adult, uh, I met a, I met a, um, uh, a dude uh, from Jordan, lived down the road, and became good friends with him and learned a lot. You know, a lot about what he believed. Um, but I didn't even even becoming close with with him and the family and uh, still you know ha- I haven't talked to him in a long time but I still have a very fond place in my my heart and my my memories f- uh, for him and his family that even the connections I had with him I even I even went to a mosque with him um, you know he, he, he described to me how they pray and why we talked about the Quran we, we asked questions he was he was awesome and open and willing to talk to me about it and uh, it wasn't at all you know it was a great it was a great experience for me actually um, but even with that experience, I never, like even having a good experience and becoming friends and you talking about our cultures together and, and, and all that stuff, even that didn't really spark the interest in me to kind of dive into Islam. It, it didn't, like I didn't have that spark that, that I was, that thread that I was following. But when I heard, when I heard this idea that, that these early Christian beliefs might be encoded in the Quran somehow, based on what these early Christian people were saying to Muhammad and what he turned around and, and uh, uh, memorialized in the Quran, that there might be something there worthwhile. So I have not 
delved into it yet, but I think I will. And I, you know, I can talk to you guys more about it after I do. I don't think I have a copy of the Quran anymore. I, I, uh, I did for many years. I'll tell you that story too, because I, because it's, it's funny. Um, I used to work at a movie theater, and uh, when I was a kid, this um, this dude came in kind of regularly, and he had an accent. He was from Africa somewhere, a very nice guy, and we got to talking, and, um, you know, because he's talking to me, the conversation went through religion pretty quick, even though I was like 16 years old at the time. And uh, we got to talking, and um, again, he was just like, just like the other guy I was telling you about. He was very, very friendly, very willing to talk to me about it, you know, not offended at all, and he brings a Quran in to the theater and he gives it to me and he says, you know, if you're interested in it, you know, I want you to read this and, you know, you can talk to me about it. Um, he said he would come back and get the book and I actually, actually never saw him again. So he, he brought this Quran to me and then I never saw him again. And, uh, I actually felt really bad about that. You know, even as a kid, I'm like, this book doesn't belong to me. And he was kind enough to lend it to me. Um, so I ended up, um, I ended up tracking this guy down. I drove to the absolute hood um, to, to bring this book back to him. It was a sketchy, sketchy, sketchy situation. I was, I, I was uncomfortable the whole time. And I go up to this uh, apartment building. I go, I go up the steps, and it's just like literally a pile of throw up on the, on the floor. And one of the, one of the doors was open across the hallway, and there was a kid in a diaper just walking in and out of the house, the kid couldn't, he could walk, you know, but he, the kid was young, way too young to be unattended. I didn't see parents anywhere. This, this kid was literally walking in and out of the house. He must've been two years old, maybe younger. It was sketchy. And so I knock on the door across the hallway and there's no answer. You know, this guy's, you know, I just wanted to give the book back, right? I didn't want to steal from this man who was so kind to me. I didn't want to steal this religious object either. You know, it didn't, didn't sit well with me that I had this book still. So I took it back to him and, uh, he didn't, uh, didn't answer. Um, so I just left the, the Quran there at the foot of the door and I left. So I don't know whatever happened to it. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, that was just, that was just like a, a, a struggling with my conscience. I, I had to, I had to return the book, you know? Um, okay. So going back to this podcast that, that Jordan has with, um, with a gentleman, uh, talking about Islam, he said something interesting to me that I didn't consider until he brought it up. He brings up Sharia law. You guys have probably heard it before because, you know, after, after 9-11, uh, when we, as a cult, as a country, suddenly had an interest in, uh, you know, the Middle East and um, their culture, we became familiar with certain things. And when, when we had, uh, you know, like political, public political issues about uh, immigration, Sharia came up specifically in the UK a couple of years ago. Um, I've, you know, uh, heard about areas over there where the settlers are heavily uh, from the Middle East and... Um, and they have their own courts, and the government has allowed them to do that. They've set up their own religious courts, and there was controversy about that. It's like, hey, you're living in a civil society with a separation of church and state. You're bound by the rules of the society. You can't, you know, you can't have a judiciary that's separate, that where you can try cases and stuff outside of the civil law. That's not okay. It's like you're setting up your. It's like you're a little Rome. You're setting up your own country in the middle of the United Kingdom. And it was that kind of a thing. And what do you remember from hearing about Sharia law? 
I remember not much, but I remember things like abuses of uh, women's rights of certain kinds. I remember hearing about genital mutilation, like clitorectomies, you know, um, you know, in certain really conservative uh, religious groups, not just Islam, but in very conservative religious groups, sex is a taboo and pleasure is a taboo. And so one of the things that they'll do is cut or deform a woman's clitoris so they cannot have pleasure during sex ever because it's somehow sinful. That's the kind of shit I remember hearing about. So if you're a nice, liberal, Western person, you have some objections to that. Sharia law does not sound like a good idea. It sounds like a challenge to the civil law that we've done, gone through great pains to, to craft over many hundreds of years. It's working just fine. Thank you very much. Um, it is a uh, overstep in terms of a separation of church and state. Um, it's a, it's a, bad, uh, a bad thing. But that's all I knew about it, right? I didn't know any of the details. I still don't know much. But this is what I learned listening to that Jordan Peterson podcast. Is he said, uh, uh, the guy that he was talking to said, what, what Westerners don't realize is that when Sharia law was, was at, the, at the height of Islamic culture or even at the beginning um, of Islamic culture, that Sharia law did something interesting. It, it limited the power of government. So this is something I think, Kyle, if you were here, I'd be curious to hear what he, what he would say about this. And he gave examples. He said, Sharia law doesn't allow for certain things. It's like the law of God. So you can't break that law because no one's above God, not even the king, not even the emperor, right? So you, you ha even those people have to obey God's law. So he said there were instances you know, in the Middle Ages where the governments in the Middle East got very powerful and they started taxing the people like crazy. And they were overtaxing the people. And as it turns out, Sharia doesn't allow that. There's prohibitions against overtaxing the people. So there was a higher authority than the king that said, look, you can't actually do that. And they don't have a choice but to, but to accept and to pull back their power in recognition of the fact that they've overstepped God's law. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, he also said something. So the idea is that religion is somehow a check of power against the government, right? We, we always talk about the United States system being a system of checks and balances and why that's important and why it works because it prevents people from any one part of a government from getting too corrupt. And, and the way it does that is by challenging that power in all these different angles all at once in a way that in a way that's difficult to gerrymander so if i take too much power as congress it takes away power from the president that's going to piss the president off he's going to want to get that power back from congress so there's a tug of war but it's not only a two-way tug of war it's a three-way tug of war because you have the judiciary involved so it's like if you hey listen if congress is going to just do what they want and they don't have to they don't have to run it by the judiciary. They don't have to get it approved by the judges, you know. We're going to check it against the Constitution. We're going to make sure it's legit. We're going to give you the thumbs up. No, as soon as the Congress decides they don't need that, the judiciary is going, what the fuck, man? That's my, that's my job. That's my power. So I'm going to start pulling back against you. So we have this three-way tug of war going on all the time. And it was designed on purpose to be a three-way tug of war. So if any one of those three 
areas decides to get totalitarian, if they decide to take more power than they, than they you know, should have, that they're going to get pulled back in different directions all the time simultaneously. So you can never get too far. And what it does is, it again, it's a check of power that prevents anybody from getting overwhelmingly di- dictatorial, right? Because power goes to your head. And so a check of power is going to try to keep your head from swelling more than a certain degree, right? It's going to keep you, it's going to keep you sane. And that, it's interesting, man. It's interesting to look at Sharia law in Islam as being exactly that, a check on the power, on the unrestrained, otherwise unrestrained power of a dictator. So even in countries where you have something like that, where you have a dictator, you have a totalitarian system, and you know the, the vast majority of people are sort of under the, under the thumb of that person, it can't get too bad beyond a certain point so long as that person respects the law of God because it's going to limit the power even of the dictator. And it makes me think of, it makes me think of like learning about, well, you know, probably from the Middle Ages um, up on to, you know, just before the First World War. It's like the height of monarchy in the Western world. Um, Germany, you know, Germany has a king, Austria has a king, you know, Portugal has a king, Spain has a king, the, you know, France, England, Scotland, everyone's got kings and that's how they rule and that's how they're, that's how they're doing it. But at that time, there was the Pope, and the Pope was kind of a king too. And the Pope sort of had this Sharia thing going on, right? He had the authority of God, and there was no higher authority than than God, right? So you couldn't have a monarch, which is basically a dictator, doing anything he wants when otherwise he basically owns and runs the whole country. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. Who's going to tell the king he can't do what he wants? The Pope. God, right? So you end up having, there's all kinds of controversy historically. I mean, um, certain kings that, that didn't want to, you know, to bow to the Pope. They, they didn't want, you know, they didn't want to lose their ultimate authority to the Pope. Um, and there were, there were, you know, there were fights about it. Um, because ultimately the fight is who's in charge. Is it the king or is it the pope? Is it, this, is it the, uh, the leader of our government and our society or is it the leader of our religion? And so when a king would, would be crowned, he would have to go oftentimes and be crowned by the pope. So his, his authority to rule comes from the pope. So the Pope is kind of on top. God is kind of on top. And that was a check of power. You know, and it kind of blows my mind. Because it, it seems to me like when I was a kid and I learned about that, I'm like, you know, it sort of goes without saying there should be a separation of church and state. What is What does the leader of religion have anything to do with what the will of the people and the direction that the society and culture wants to go and, you know, economics and... Uh, manufacturing and you know all of the things that are going on in that in that state or in that you know um, uh, whatever in the, you know in that uh, um, municipality. What does the religion have to do with that? Why, why can't the people just be religious and follow their religious practices and let that govern their morality? And then when they're looking to do things socially as a group, when they're looking to you know change the economy or build a building or 
you know, make a new social institution or whatever, that that's something that, that can be done socially. And that, that just kind of seemed like it went without saying, because I grew up in a society that has a separation of church and state. It never occurred to me. It's like, why in the world would the Pope be involved? Why should a king bow to the Pope? It has not, it's not a, none of the Pope's goddamn business. That's how I thought about it when I was a kid. Like, you know, that doesn't seem right to me. It seems like the religion is infringing on, you know, the the freedoms of people to govern themselves how they how they want. And then I stumbled on this idea that that religion is a check of power against the government. That's true. It's true with Sharia. And it's, it was true in the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church was more powerful and st- to the degree where, that the divine right to rule and all your, your permission to be king was basically dependent on the authority of the Pope, that that is a check of power, that the king cannot go around killing um, you know, indiscriminately and stealing from the poor and um, you know, I don't know, whatever whatever terrible thing you might you might do for whatever terrible reason, because the Bible says that you shouldn't do those things, and that there's some powerful authority called the Pope that can actually punish you for it, and that might be somehow in the here and now, and it might be in the afterlife. And there was a time when the Pope had an army, so he could enforce shit. That doesn't exist today. We we have separated church and state, which seems like a good thing. But what we've done, seemingly, is removed a check of power on the government by removing religion from the picture. Isn't that interesting? It's like religion serves a social social purpose that I never quite appreciated, that it's a check of power against the state from overreaching. So the so so religion is just simply putting a cap on the power of any dictator and and deferring to the authority of God and you can't go any higher than that. And we've removed that. Not only have we removed that from our from the western sort of society, um we sort of removed that with ourselves and our own our own houses and our own families and our own souls because we don't go to church and we don't read the Bible and we don't have conversations with people about religion and we don't question them and we we believe more and more every day that the value of religion is sort of a bygone thing that's that's stale and past its prime and has lost whatever meaning and value it might have once had and now it's a distraction now it's a residual um, vestigial you know remnant of some past time that we just haven't kicked off yet it's a piece of dog shit stuck to our boot that we can't quite shake that's that's how we that's how we pretend religion is and it's interesting to think if we didn't think that way that religion would be a check of power to ourselves it would be a check of power to our family would be a check of power to our society to our government and i just wonder what what the consequences have been you know have we recognized exactly what the consequences have been in, in doing that you know over the last couple hundred years and what the consequences will be and one of those consequences seems to be the replacement or the 
the escalation of government to the position of God or ideology to the position of the sacred. We, we, now, we now, rather than having a check of power, we're sort of putting, we're sort of putting all the power into the, into the hands of the government and setting up some sort of echo chamber for it to just jerk itself off. That's how it seems to me. Because when, when religion was meant to be a check of power against the government, we've now put the government in that place. So it's, it's, it's 100% a jerk-off festival of the government in itself, right? It's the civil authority, and it's the highest authority. What does that mean? It's, it means something. The highest authority seems to mean something. Because, because it, was a che- it was an effective check on power. So it must mean something. So we have this religious wiring, you know, human beings. We have this capability of um, conceptualizing God, conceptualizing eternity, asking questions about our origins, where we came from, where the universe came from. It's unavoidable. We have this religious wiring and, and searching for meaning that's all tied together with morality and the whole, the whole thing. And we carry it with us generation after generation. We have not gotten rid of it. So we remove it from our from our society. We put it out of sight, out of mind, but it's still there in our hearts and we can't get rid of it. So what do we do? We create a political religion, an ideological religion. Let me paint the picture for you. In a religious system, let's take Christianity for an example, you've got a professional priesthood. You've got a ruling class in terms of the religious authority. You might call them priests. You might call them saints. You know what I mean? What are they? They are some, somebody that represents a high, a high good. There's somebody that represents an ideal that you should strive for. That's what a saint is. It's a perfectly good person or somebody who did an unusual sacrifice, somebody who did something honorable and unbelievable and miraculous and something that you want to imitate. Um, something great. So you might call that a priest or a saint from a religious perspective. From a political perspective, though, do we have priests? Do we have saints? You bet your ass we have saints. If you're a a lefty, let's say, you might look at somebody like Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt as a saint. You might look at somebody like Obama as a saint. If you're a conservative, you might look at somebody like Ronald Reagan as a saint or George W. Bush as a saint. Do you know what I'm saying? Somebody who symbolizes the highest um, ideal. You know, for Ronald Reagan, it's something like freedom and, and personal freedom and individual liberty and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and you know, um, the, the authority of the individual. And with somebody like, like Obama, uh, it might be something like the ideal of um, social care, like taking care of, of you know, people, being good-hearted, recognizing need and, and filling that need, being self-sacrificial, you know, something like that, like this, like this bleeding heart liberal, right? Like, like that sort of a symbol. Do you, do you not think that that's the same thing a saint is? It's exactly the same thing that a saint is. 
What about God? What about the big guy? What about God himself? In religion, that's the final authority. It's the ultimate authority. It's also the first cause. It's the thing that causes everything to be. It's the origin and the source of it and the ultimate authority. Do we have something like that in politics? Maybe it's the president. Ooh, better yet, maybe it's the office of the president. Because that's immortal, right? Right? You know, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, those presidents die away. They're gone. But the office of the president, that's immortal. Like God is immortal. And it represents the figurehead. It's the, the president is the living symbol of the, of, the, of the, not the government, but the principles the government was founded on. That's like, that's like the pharaoh in Egypt. He was a living symbol of the principles that the culture was founded on. That's what the president is. He's a figurehead, a person that represents, like the queen of England is the person that represents what England stands for. Do you know what I mean? Do you not see that as God from a political perspective? That's exactly what it is. That's the thing that represents the source of our culture, the source of our government, the principles on which they were all based, and what makes everything work, what makes our society exist and our country exist. If it wasn't for that, it wouldn't exist. Like, let there be America, and, and, and God saw that it was good. What about a Messiah? Religions seem to always have a Messiah, a messenger, a prophet, or somebody who's promised. So we have a Jesus, we have a Buddha, we got something like that. Do we have that in politics? Do we have a Messiah? You bet your sweet ass we have a Messiah. We have many. Because what is a Messiah? What was Jesus? You know, Jesus came in, he overturned the money changers' tables in front of the temple. You know, he... he um, preached and, uh, and um, co uh, contradicted the priests, the Pharisees. He was a reformer. He was somebody who came in and said, this is where you've gone wrong, and this is the right path. The Messiah is a reformer. It's somebody who fixes what's broken and brings something new into being. Do we have something like that in politics? Well, for Christ's sake, the word reformer comes from politics. You know? Because you can imagine Jesus saying, let all the little children come to me and, you know, turn the other cheek and take care of the poor and all that sort of thing. Who comes to mind? AOC? Is she the Messiah? She's the pol a political reformer. How about Bernie Sanders? You, know, you can make some Jesus comparisons between a communist like Bernie Sanders, right? So, so for, for sure, we've got messiahs in politics, for sure. That's who they are. What about the Bible? What about, what about the law? What about the written book that's so important in modern religions? Do we have that? Do we have that in politics? Well, I mean, we do, right? We have the Constitution. We have the Declaration of Independence. We've got, we've got our codified books that tell us what the, what the rules are, what the dogma is. But we also have, we also have ideology, and I'm not sure, if we're talking politics here, I'm not sure which one is the Bible. Which one is the political Bible? Is it the, is it the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution? It should be. Is that what it is, or is it, this, is it ideology? See, here's the thing. Ide ideology is sneaky, because it's not written down exactly. 
It's certainly not written down all in one place, and it's certainly not written down by one person. It's spread out in, with ideas all over the place, with connections of all sorts. And there's no way of saying for sure what the, where the beginning and end of the ideology is. See, if it's not written, written down, if it's not codified into a Bible, then it can change and morph and mutate, and nobody's ever going to notice. Nobody can ever point to something and say, "What's you know? You said it meant this, and now you're saying it means this, and it, it doesn't make sense." No, it does. See, ideology doesn't matter. See, it can mean whatever they want it to mean, and they and people can weasel around any logic they need to to make it consistent. We do it all the time. Ideology is weird in that way. It's not written down and codified for a reason, so that it can be slippery, so that it can change any way it needs to change, so that it can survive. Ideology is slippery. What about the idea of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the Declaration? What about that as the Bible? So I think that's an interesting analogy because, because people don't hold it sacred anymore. Some people do, and most people used to. We used to look at those things as sacred, you know. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. You know, those were sacred words, sacred words that we based the entire system on. And every decision we made has to be consistent with those principles. And I get the hair standing up on my arms right now talking about it. And this is something people don't understand anymore. This is something that's not taught anymore. And I'm afraid our children aren't going to have the hair stand up on their arms when they say things like I just said anymore. But what's interesting is that just like a holy book, you have people that will read the Constitution and have their own take on the Constitution. So it's like you have, we have denominations. Isn't that weird? It's funny, though. It's like you can read the Bible and you can say, look, I don't think, th- I don't think the Bible says that you need to, um, or I don't think the Bible says that the uh, uh, communion wafer and, and wine uh, is literally the body and blood of Jesus. I don't think that. Um, and the other guy says, no, I, I, think, I think that's exactly what it means. I think there's some magic that happens. There's some religion magic that happens when you swallow that thing, and it turns it into the actual body and blood of Jesus. And they're arguing about that. And one of, it makes one of them a Lutheran and one of them a Catholic, right? That's how denominations happen, because you have a disagreement about something, something like that, a little detail or, or something. And this is exactly what happens when people read the Constitution, what makes you a Whig or a Tory or a Bull Moose Party member or a Republican or a Democrat or a classical liberal or a libertarian? What makes you those things? To some degree, it breaks down to when you read the Constitution, how you interpret it. What does it mean to you? Is it a living document that, that can be changed? Is there room for interpretation? Is it, is it all gray or is it not? Is it, is it in this way and not in that way? Is that what makes you a, a, a Democrat and me a Republican? That's our denominations, you guys. It's our religious denominations, our politico-religious denominations. Amazing. Amazing. All right, so where I want to wrap up here is, is something like this. When you... When you criticize religion, when anybody does, a lot of times it boils down to how it divides people uh, and conflict, but it also boils down to the perception of manipulation, right? It's like if I'm, if I'm a religious believer, if I'm a faithful person, 
um, then then I'm going to be somebody who is willing to defer to the ultimate authority, let's say. I'm going to allow God's authority to override my own. I'm going to let the will of God override my own will because that's the, that's the right thing to do, to bow down to your creator, right? That's the respectful thing to do if you believe in that sort of thing. And so religion can be used and has been used and is used to manipulate people, good people, honest people who want to obey the rules, who want to give glory to God, who want to recognize whatever that, whatever that longing is in their soul that causes them to believe that there, that there must be a God. They, that, you know, that's a really nice thing to me. But it's something that's a, it's a, it's a vulnerability, right? Because if you're somebody that wants to bow down to the ultimate authority and recognize God... And somebody comes to you and says, I speak for God, and he says, I need 10% of your income. Right? Then I can manipulate you to give me money. I can manipulate you and guilt you to showing up to my church every Sunday, to helping out with, with the freaking spaghetti dinner and the bake sale. You know, it's like there's all sorts of manipulation going on in religion that has to do with keeping people's behavior in line and funding a priesthood, a professional ruling class. You know, so so when I ask you to consider religion that way, you know, the way that people tend to object to organized religion, it has to do with with threats and scaring people into behaving and manipulating people into changing their behavior, being a good boy, following the rules. You know, God is watching. God is watching. But also the ability to push people into something like warfare. Right. That. That's what, that's what used to do it, you know, for most of human history. What would get me to go to war with you? Oftentimes that boiled down to religion, a difference in religion. And I can manipulate you as a leader by saying, look, these Muslims over there in the Holy Land are keeping the Christians from all over the West from ever going to see the place where their, where their Lord walked. And the Crusades happened for decades and decades, a wave after wave of Crusades of people coming from the West to kill people in the East, and, you know, so on and so forth. So they can push people to war, they can extract money, and, and the interesting thing here is that when you pay your tithings and your alms and so forth, the Bible says you're doing that to take care of the poor, you know, you're doing that to take care of the poor and the needy. But where does that money go today? It goes to pay for the rent for church and the utilities and for the, you know, it, it pays for the preacher and for the, you know, the choir director and for the, you know, that's what it pays for. So, so you, you can manipulate people's good nature and you can manipulate people's spirituality to get them to pay for your fucking rent and to get them to, to get them to, to pay for your salary right you you can you can create a ruling class a priestly class that can just live off of everybody else so there's manipulation involved and there's obligations there's you know there's obligations that go along with it like the obligation to take care of the poor and and the helpless and and you know that's a that's a thing that religion has done that's been honorable you know i, I can't say enough good about that even even you know from the catholic church perspective the hospitals and the schools for a very very long time you know, they were taken care of by the Catholic Church. 
So that's sort of the negative side of the coin and how religion can be used to manipulate people. But I want to I want to give you the political version of this like we've been doing so that you can understand where I'm coming from. So let's let's think about this from the perspective of politics as a religion. So when I said that religion will scare or threaten people into behaving, you know, like here are the 10 commandments and if you don't obey them you're going to go to hell and burn forever, right? The scare tactics to get you to change your behavior. Do we have that in politics? I mean I mean any any political advertisement you see is doing that. You know, I, I, I often will make that joke, fear, fear, fucking fear. That's what every newspaper article headline and every, you know, every tweet uh, that, I, that I read that has a, a political headline, it's a scare tactic, you know? Do this or the world's going to end. Climate change, you know? Do this and the, the you know, the uh, country's going to be over, over, or the country's going to be overwhelmed by immigrants, you know? It's, it's scare tactics, you, that are being done to change our behavior in exactly the same way that religion uses ultimate authority to control your behavior. What about pushing people into war? That's something that religion has always been good at. Is that the case today? Not even close. Who's pushing us into war? Politics and the media. That's who's pushing us into war. It's not about religion anymore, but it kind of is. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? What about extracting money to fund a priesthood? They get, they get money from us in order to live in a way that nobody else gets to live. In a sort of a cushy way, where all they have to do is be holy, um, understand the scripture, and entertain us for an hour on Sundays. And I... I say that in some jest. I, you know, I don't want to diminish the idea of religious or holy people. I'm only diminishing the idea of the manipulation that's involved. Because you can see there's a parallel here to the ruling class, to the political elite. Those are the people that never have to work a day in their lives, that get to tax us, that get to... Um, you know, get campaign contributions tax tax free and live very well and relatively easily. And all they've got to do is know the Constitution better than everybody else and make good arguments and entertain us and entertain us. Uh, you know, in sound bites on the uh, on the news. That's all they have to do. And and they and they successfully extract money from us to to exist in this way that we continue to fund. Because I don't know why. I don't know why. But if you don't think that religion is a check on government power, and you don't think that politics has become a religion, think about, think about what I've said. Politics today has a priesthood. It has a God. It has a Messiah, many Messiahs. And it has a Bible. And it manipulates us to behave. It manip manipulates us to go to war for it. And it extracts money from us in a way that allows them to live easily. And, and somehow in this elevated position like a, like a priesthood, like a ruling class, 
that we that we respect that we that we know all their names like they're like they're fucking trading baseball cards of politicians you know they're like celebrities so what do you think is politics is politics become our religion god i hope not well there you have it that's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 